Thanks. I think we'll, we'll um, commence the second half, which we're terming playfully question time. So, um, um, yeah, so welcome, welcome back to the second half of a stage for new parenthood. For those of you who've just stumbled across the pavilion, welcome. Um, really delighted that people that didn't know that this was on just happened to see the rows of prams outside as an advertisement that this is a baby-friendly space. So, yeah, really, really big welcome to you all. Um, I thought we'd just spend some time, however long we want, before our babies crack it, um, uh, to just have a conversation with you all, because I'm curious also about how you're finding this space, um, and to ask our speakers today some questions and have you ask them some questions as well. So yeah, I guess I just wanted to start off by throwing it out to you, the parents and your babies, just to ask, you know, how's it, how's it going? Is this a functioning parents' room for you? Um, what are you looking for? to make you feel comfortable and what could we do better? How's it, how's it working? There's a, Roy's got a roving mic, so if you wanted to give us any feedback, we'd love to have it. Anyone? So The bean bags are great. Okay, we've got the National Portrait Gallery in Canberra to thank for them, so that's awesome. Um, yeah, I was, one of the things I was thinking about when we we're thinking about our intervention for the space was what is the best seating for breastfeeding or just being comfortable and um, I've got a very particular chair that I like to sit in was thinking about these seats like what do you guys reckon about the the amphitheater seating and it's um, how does it work for your needs as a maybe you up the back the breastfeeding women how's it going yeah Nice view. Yeah, cool. Are the seats too deep to be comfortable, like with the back? More back? Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Armchair pods. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, feel free to grab as many cushions as you need to to kind of bolster you if that's possible. But I, I see that that's maybe a bit awkward. Um, any other? Are you using the other change mats useful? Yes? Yeah? Yeah? Cool, okay. Thank you, baby rest. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, good, good. What else? Like, are your babies liking the mobile? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the breeze as well today. That's really moving it a lot. Well, yeah, feel free to just let us know also. Like, I'm really curious. Kate and I, we're doing three more events over the course of the M Pavilion season. So there'll be one in November, December and January. And they'll each be different, but we're keen to respond to how parents use the space at each of them and kind of change it. So, yeah, changing the seating would be an interesting one to take into, um, take into account. Um, how – I want to ask you guys, but also the audience, and just open up a conversation about how could cities and domestic architecture accommodate parents and babies – better? Maybe I'll throw it to you, you guys. Um, I guess uh, for me it was more about um, there's, there's kind of physical accommodation of what you need with a baby but also it's more of the kind of stigma whether it exists or not but like kind of how you feel taking a baby into kind of the city or the spaces in the city. Um, so I guess for me, this event is great because it's kind of like flipping it, I guess, and bringing that into the forefront of like a pavilion in the city that is otherwise not used for those purposes. Um, 
Yeah, yeah I, I brought um, Mabel in her pram to one of the very early M Pavilion events here and I was the only one with a pram and I got here really early to make sure that I had my space and brought it and sat where you're sitting, Helen, just right there. And um, the, it was a really packed out event and I became very, very self-conscious of how much space I was taking up and it was it was only about an hour long, I think, the event, but it was really warm. It was really packed. And Mabel was asleep for the first part of it, but then woke, needed to be fed, started grizzling, wanted to be wriggling around. And I became increasingly anxious about how much space we were taking up, how much attention we were drawing to ourselves by accident and how kind of visible you are as a parent in those spaces. Um, luckily, I had Natalie there who understood and kind of offered Mabel a peg which was a great play toy at the time. Well, I think it was interesting for me to kind of observe that as not being myself yeah. and actually, like, it's totally fine. No one cares. Yeah. But it's all about kind of how you, like, you feel in that moment, like everyone's looking at you. Oh, my God, my baby better not cry. Yeah. Um, whereas really people sitting around were kind of enjoying that there was a baby there and it kind of lightened the space. Yeah, actually, I ended up putting Mabel in the kind of, concreted area in the kind of she was very visible then and David Giannotten who's the principal architect of this he took a he snapped a photo of the audience and Mabel's front and center and he posted it later in his lecture um, at Melbourne School of Design and he approached Mabel and me the next day to say you know I had a special connection with her she was wonderful using the space so we might we might be lucky enough to have him back for one of the later events to speak about what he feels like, you know, having his very sleek architectural space domesticated in this way and taken over by um, babies doing all their grotty, grotty things. But how, how are you all feeling in the space? Hot. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, I feel, I feel the same. Okay, that's, that's an interesting provocation. <laughs> have to think about what we could do. Like a big um, sun shelter or something. Yeah, some fans. Yeah. Yeah. In some places for those babies that are very young. Okay, so making the space a bit... Yeah, I mean, Darker. even some smaller mobiles. I mean, there's a, a lot of ceiling space that's not being used. Yes. I mean, there is one, one central mo mobile yeah. in the center, but, you know, there could be other things strung around and yeah. for fun. Yes, yeah, true. What do you guys think? Um, it's interesting you say that because we're seeing the four, like, the four events as a series. We've obviously started with the mobile, uh, referencing the house or home. Um, but we're seeing these kind of installations develop over the, f over the four events as well. And so as the event themes changes, we're seeing these... I mean, we don't know what they're going to be yet, but mm. we're seeing them develop with those themes. Yeah, and we'll be responding to your feedback for sure. So, yeah, we'll have to take that... How can we make this a more shaded or more cocooned space? Because I think David Giannotten spoke about having the low-hanging ceiling was a feature... Um, so that you feel like you're kind of coming into an enclosed space. And this is much more enclosed than any of the other M pavilions, to my knowledge. Um, so they, it does have that feeling of a room, but I agree with you. It still sort of feels exposed in a way because of the translucent um, ceiling. That would be an, a 
an interesting challenge. <laughs> what about you, Jessica? How are you feeling that the space um, um, works? I'm feeling great in this space because I don't have a baby with me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I haven't had a baby for a while. My son is five now. Um, but I'm vividly coming back to the time looking out into the audience where you're only here, you know, a, a quarter of the way at the best of times sometimes because so much of your attention is riveted on what your baby is doing. And um, some escapes, some escape artists. I think having the, uh, the open space is really enticing for little, little people. Yeah. Yeah, there are these um, stools that have been designed for the space that are... Um, cubes with very sharp edges. We ended up taking them out of the space because we felt like they were quite baby unfriendly. We considered making them into a sort of barrier, like a, to trap the, the wandering babies, but then <laughs> we thought that doesn't really go with our theme of accessibility um, and people have to be able to come in and out as they please. But just noticing, are there, how, do you guys feel like this space is baby friendly? Um, how, do the, how are the stairs working? The plugs and cords. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, that's a good point. Yeah, I've just moved house and all of the um, plugs are up and I never and my baby just started crawling and I'm so thankful because she goes for all the most dangerous things but thankfully the woman who did the renovation also had a baby and put them up. So, yeah, that's, that's an important point. Um, okay, um, Curious how this is working as a parenting room. Like, do you all use parenting rooms? I've been, we have an Instagram feed called, uh, that's Guest Rigs, which is the name of Kate's and my collaboration. And I've been slowly documenting my adventures in Melbourne's parents' rooms, which are often, to me, fairly dismal spaces, some of them. But keen to hear about how this compares and what are the good things about those parenting rooms that this doesn't have. And, yeah, what are your reflections on that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been using the parenting room at the Paran Central Center, okay. and well, I, for the first time had a very successful experience changing Noah. Um, and the, I noticed the lighting was very bright. Okay. And I also heard from another parent that oh, I noticed my daughter kind of um, bugs out a little bit. She doesn't like the bright light. So maybe okay. a dimmer yeah. or some thought about that. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what you like about those parenting? No. no. Oh, no, okay. The bright lighting, like, you know, piercing down yeah. is not ideal, yes. I found. Yes. And I think okay. she was echoing the same thing. How is she finding the lighting here today? Oh, Noah? Yeah. Well, he's oh, just he's, been sorry. eating. He's pretty blissed out. Okay. <laughs> I, I find I'm about to get my sunglasses out. Yeah. So there is maybe some glare somehow or, yeah, if we do feel a bit exposed. Yeah, okay. Um, but, yeah. That would be more for the general comment about other spaces out around, yeah. around town. Okay, that they don't accommodate for that need for dim lighting. Possibly. Okay. I mean, this seems a little bit, uh, I don't know, precious or... or I don't think so. Grandiose. I think, like, is it too much to ask? No, I don't think so. I think, I think like, designers often don't understand what parents really want or need and the parents' rooms often have gestures towards making it comfortable space but they often just get it so wrong um i went to the barclay square parents rooms yesterday which are hilarious they have these bright red kind of velvety curtains right in front of the breastfeeding chairs and 
my daughter is particularly distractible at the moment and she just became completely engrossed in these weird curtains that were right up against us. So I couldn't actually breastfeed because she was just way too engrossed in these curtains. It was, it was a farce. I had, to, I had to leave. But there was nowhere else really comfortable to sit and she's so distractible that I do need a quiet space now. Like I used to breastfeed happily wherever but now I can't do that because it's just like unsuccessful. She'll get too interested in everything else. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're funny spaces, parents' rooms. Um, all right. Um, so I just wanted to... I've got a few questions, but also keen if anyone else has questions. But I thought I'd throw some back to our speakers today. I was wondering, Jessica, in the reading that you did, you reflected on moving house and being pregnant, inhabiting space. But I was wanting to ask you sort of explicitly about how your postnatal depression was... Um, no one likes that question. <laughs> ..was linked to the housebound experience of early parenthood and how, how those two things were related? Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently um, as we have our second year in Canberra, which is so bloody cold in the winter and hot in the summer. Our house is really poorly oriented, so it has no northern light. It's just dark all the time and um, really exposed to the elements. And it's drawn my attention to how few pieces of domestic architecture actually take into account, uh, well, in Australia, the seasons, for one thing. We don't seem to acknowledge that there are seasons in our Victorian and um, Edwardian architecture, but even in some contemporary builds. Um, I was lucky in that I had my most severe experiences of depression in a terrace, which was quite enclosed, quite well built. It had some natural light. It had some cross-ventilation. So those physical symptoms that I was experiencing weren't unduly exacerbated. But it's funny that you mentioned about the light because, I mean, I don't understand the rationale for fluorescent lighting anywhere, but particularly in child... Uh, Child environments, you know, we have a fluorescent light in our kitchen in our rental at the moment that we've just stuck a linen tea towel on top of because I just can't stand it, you know, it's just too bright. I was reading in the paper the other day, there's a supermarket that's trialling a quiet hour for autistic shoppers and they turn off the music and they turn off the fluorescent lighting and it's just, you know, a food shop. And I'm thinking, you bastards, you know, if you know that this freaks people out, just stop doing it. Not for an hour, but entirely. There's, a, there's so many spaces, both within and without the home, that are unnecessarily hyper-stimulating. And I'm sure that serves some kind of capitalist purpose. It does? No, yeah. But it's certainly something that has an adverse effect on the physical body, I think, of both the mother and the child, and it's very stressful. You just end up panicking and consuming and buying stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Working on this project on menstruation and menopause, this is, stick, stick with me, it's a big tangent, but it's relevant to what you're talking about. And there's some studies that are pointing to, there's a lot of uh, panic about, in certain countries in the West, why is menarche happening yeah. earlier and earlier? And so there's, menarche is the first period. So people have been, you know, looking at all different things to do with changes in our environment and so on. And... The broad answer is there's nothing really to panic about. But something that they have found was that fluorescent indoor lighting. You're kidding. 
has an impact on your hormonal profile because it's to do with like your circadian rhythms. So that the, the human body for thousands of years had built its hormonal fluctuations and, you know, your hormones do make all the really important shit happen in your body. So like make the period come and make the ovulation happen and make the, you know, make you get angry at things that are bad for you and make you get happy when something, you know, like they're really important and they are really sensitive to light because they used to only be guided by natural light. So electrical light and especially like fluorescent track lighting can actually literally change your hormonal profile and change your, your menstrual cycle. So if something can change the menstrual cycle, it can change everything. I mean, that's kind of the, yeah. So that, I mean, I imagine the reason for it is that it's cheap and it's maybe at some point was thought of as efficient to just have like big long track lights, but yeah, it's... Yeah, I think so. And it's also just stimulating, so you don't doze off, so you're kind of constantly wired. So like in offices, in that's office, why they yeah. want everyone to be like, yeah. bang, bang, bang. I mean, I assume. But why um, in a rental property? <laughs> well, yeah. I have no idea. I guess those bars are, are quite cheap and they've got quite a long lifespan as opposed to those incandescent ones. There's no excuse, really. Just lazy landlords. I was also just going to say, um, I feel like those parenting rooms um, appear as, like, sort of sterile and that kind of lighting contributes to that feeling of, like, okay, it's really clean, which seems to be something that is apparently desirable. I don't know, according to the designers or something. But, like, our house, like is probably covered in a thin layer of excretion, just like general excretion, probably. You know, I wouldn't even know. But so we don't like to have too bright a light because it kind of draws attention to that. But also the dim lighting maybe then like makes spaces not feel as clean and maybe in public spaces you maybe, I, I don't know, I sort of, when I go to a parenting room, I do want to feel like it's clean. Often breastfeeding chairs are splattered with someone else's breast milk, which kind of weirds me out. Um, maybe it shouldn't, but um, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with that—that that feeling of of a, a space being sterile for public use. I'm not sure. It feels very institutional, yeah. which is something I feel uncomfortable with as a parent because I don't think that breastfeeding should be institutionalized. You know, it would yeah. be nice to see. It's lovely to see so much breastfeeding here today, actually, because no one's self-conscious about it. No one's being made self-conscious about it. We don't have a designated go in there and get your tits out room. Mm -hmm. I can see how it's, you know, when you have a baby going through that phase of, you know, they, they can't sit still, it's nice to have somewhere to go and have some privacy. Mm. But I think the reason that my, my skin arcs up in the parents' room is it I don't know that it's about cleanliness, it's about hygiene mm, in the mm, same way that yeah. a, a public toilet is about hygiene. Yes. And it, it kind of, by inference, makes you feel unhygienic. Yes, yes. And, in fact, these baby mats, that, the change mats that were donated by Baby Rest, that, to me, like, they're the only thing in this space that um, alludes to that kind of hygienic um, thing. They're white, they're very bright, they're like, out of this plastic. And I brought as many... Um, bunny rugs as I could to try and cover them and, you know, encourage you to do the same because it, all, the rest of the stuff here, are, you know, some of them are from our houses and um, from the portrait gallery and, and they feel less hygienic in a way and sort of less institutional and therefore more comfortable perhaps. Um, I think that that's also 
what I was a bit of what I was trying to say before in that um, how you know with all these sectioned off sorry just keeping my eyes on babies at the same time um, all these sectioned off areas that you meant to okay that's that's where you do the parenting in there please um, that that is part of the what drives this isolation and feeling like you're not welcome in public spaces. Yeah, Kate and I have been documenting um, the signage that c goes along with parenting spaces and, you know, they're often quite like feeding room. You know, it sounds like a place, like um, a line-up of, of cow. You know, it's quite an animal kind of thing. <laughs> like, um, and I think the next one, which is street, we might, it might be a bit of a signage exercise and playing with, with the language around that and how that kind of designates space. You know, we sort of um, vaguely designated that top row as the changing row, but I'm really glad to see that you've brought them down and, and you know, fucked with that because we don't, we don't want it to be designated. You know, we want to see how you, how you use it. Um. I've also had at least, like, three conversations with people here about babies falling off things. So I think that's probably a bit of a concern as well. What have babies been falling off? Oh, then? nothing here. Like, okay. I, I think your liability insurance is still fine. <laughs> cool. Just note that in pavilion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to make, a, like, a general comment about the space and some of what you've been talking about. I think what's really nice here is the, like, the critical mass that's happening and opens up or maybe even takes away some of the necessity for the infrastructure that you need in a parent's room because, you, like um, Jessica said, you've got so many people here together, you don't feel self-conscious. And that's one thing I've been noticing about using the city since having a little one is that if I'm out with another mother, like just having that sort of collaborative feeling in the space just means everything feels easier than it does when I'm on my own. Yeah. Um, and I just think, it, you know, that... So I'm taking a bit of a tangent then going to the domestic space. Like, we reorganise our domestic like houses. None of them are really set up for children. We go through and we kind of, like, band-aid, like, retrofit everything to yes. kind of toddler-proof or whatever you need to do. Yes. And I just think, like, collectively that needs to happen to the city. And this is maybe a beginning of that. Like, I think that... So there's a kind of collective action... That could be happening. Yeah, definitely. That would be really amazing. Yeah, it's funny how when you're with someone else who also has a child, they just intuitively understand what you might need. Like that time that I described at M Pavilion, Natalie was with me. Um, she didn't have Elliot that day, so she was sort of a par extra parent on hand. And we had only just met actually that day, um, and I, I felt like we just kind of fell into this familiarity, which was so lovely because she just kind of knew how to support me in those tricky moments and I felt really, um, I felt really safe to have her there and kind of being like, okay, I'll look after Mabel while you just do this or I'll hold her for a second while you rearrange yourself so you can feed and um, it did feel like that. But I'm curious, how, how do you think that could, how could we change the city to, like what, what is the um, extension of that? Like how... I'm not sure, but, like, just as you were saying that, the other thing I've thought about, though, is when I am out and about with another mother, it just exacerbates the problems that you talked about, like you were saying about taking up space with a pram. Yeah. So when you get on a bus with two prams... Yes. ..the look you get from a bus driver, the, you know, the, like, the more of you are there are together, the more of a problem you appear to be to other people. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, but for me, there feels like that maybe there's some, like activist potential in that as yeah. well. I think there's plenty of that. 
Yeah, I mean, one, one thing that became blindingly obvious to me when I had a child was that a big pram is about the same size as a small wheelchair. Mm. And so often the parenting facility is the disability access facility. It's the put all the troublesome bodies away in a room philosophy. And so often that makes both of those considerations totally half-baked and really inaccessible. You know, the, the pull-down koala grimy thing that's half-hanging above the toilet. Like, who is that helping? Um, and uh, I, I used to feel very self-conscious. You know, for the first six months of Owen's life, I had this shitty little fold-up umbrella pram that someone had given us, and I was walking around like this, you know, with my spinal contorted. Eventually, my, my husband just looked at me and said, this is ridiculous, you know, I'm six foot, I cannot push this thing anymore. And so we went and, you know, went on Gumtree, found a really big one, and I was so self-conscious, Some, you know, that, that I had the four-wheel drive pram, that I was going to get the looks, that I was going to get the comments... And um, it made me really viscerally realise how many places in my suburb, Footscray, somebody with mobility impairments couldn't go. And when I realised that, I kind of, kind of went, well, sorry, I'm going to swear about in front of the babies. I thought, you know, fuck it. Um, you know, my baby is a person and they have a right to space, just as a person with mobility impairments is a person and has a right to space. And if you can't cater to either of us, the problem is with you and it's with the design. And after that, I just didn't give a shit anymore. It's a, tr it's a tricky line to walk, though, isn't it? There, uh, there's a, there was a court case in the UK about this kind of conflation of um, accessible spaces and there was a bus company that had yeah, one designated kind of spot um, for wheelchairs, prams, and a man in a wheelchair was denied entry onto the bus because there was a woman occupying that space with a pram. He sued the bus company and he actually won the case because a baby can be taken out of a pram, um, whereas a person in a wheelchair can't just get out of their wheelchair and dismount it. And yet it's, like, it's, it's so problematic that, that that's just one space given for everyone using mobility yeah, that, aids. that the two are pitted against one another. You know, it's, it's really, you know, the, the, everybody who can get around has 95% of everything and then we're slugging it out, trying to cooperate and see who can have what and just like on the, on the fringe and made to feel like such a burden for doing so. Yeah. I just... Hi. Um, I've also found sometimes the opposite can be true because once you find those places that are wheelchair accessible, pram accessible, you just go there all the time. And it's just such a wonderful business opportunity. <laughs> like, I know, you know, I live in Fitzroy and like, I know all the bars and the cafes that I can yeah. get into one-handed and they can take all my money because like, I'm there all the time. Um, and I feel it's from a business perspective, it's not that much more difficult to have, like, a wider door and, like, cut out the step into the, the place. And um, it's actually a really fab wine bar down in Collingwood as well. The owner is in a wheelchair. And so there's, like, nice wide spaces in between all the sort of tables and the racks of wine and stuff. And it's not a big deal. It's not a designated, here are all the special bodies, that's where they go. It's just a lovely space that also happens to be very accessible and it's like a great business opportunity I think that people are missing out on by not making space more accessible. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks Paula. Um, I feel like there's lots of business opportunities not to put a capitalist lens on everything but even Sonia and I were talking about 
like actually having a pram with a table on the top of it or something. I feel like if there's any industrial designers in the room, and I was thinking of a change table that flopped down somehow telescopically. I don't know, you could really over-engineer the shit out of it so the dads are like... You know, loving yeah, it yeah. as well. Have you got the yeah. the, the table point zero X? Yeah. It's the new one. But, like, it would be really amazing. Yeah, it would be incredible. Um, and there's a lot of incredible, I mean, like, the dads, but I think women do a lot of engineering on the fly when they have small children, you know. it's There's a kind of approach to solving problems that you didn't even know existed. I'm just keen to... We, I'm, noticing the time and that I want to allow for everyone to have time at the end before we have to start deinstalling. So I just wanted to ask our speakers a little bit more. Um, yeah, I'm sort of curious, Natalie and Caitlin, like how has having um, Elliot around, I'm curious to just ask a little bit more about your collaboration um, and how that's maybe informing other work that you're doing. Um, if you could speak a little bit more about that. I think we're having a little bit of a performance of it today yeah. in that it's often in kind of short bursts and a little bit distracted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we just work when we can. I guess for me as the non-childed person, it, um, you know, and as Nat, we just kind of deal with with whatever we can. So I guess... What I learned from it was, you know, there's a really, there's a line of like, we can't keep going. Like the child is not going to go, oh, okay, you can work for 15 more minutes and just sort it out and I'll wait. So I guess we just roll with the, the temporal nature of, of the day. Um, and then, yeah, kind of as I was saying before, just divvy up tasks and then, you know, talk a lot via email, I guess. And I think it adds, uh, like it definitely influences the work in many ways. In one way, you know, getting short bursts of time that are kind of quite far apart, we're continually able to kind of reflect on um, the efficiency of the work we're doing. And it's like, okay, we've got the, uh, this idea, we're going to do this. And then we've got a bit of time in between actually doing it. And we think, well, maybe we can get that effect a bit quicker by yeah. doing it this way. And do those details actually matter to other people or is it just to us? And will it actually impact the final result of you know is it just us being yeah. obsessed with you know how the knots are tied yeah it's been good in just breaking the kind of perfection mold that you know at uni you spend five days on a render or something but now it's like just get it out and move on yeah. and that preciousness is good because I mean I can definitely get a bit heady about it and get so freaked out that it's not perfect and never do anything yeah. um so I guess that's been a good learning curve yeah how definitely has about production yeah I was curious how having a baby fit in with your artistic practice, Jessica, because I know there are also a lot of women here today that, um, you know, are brilliant in their own fields and then have a baby and, you know, trying to juggle those two things and how it changes the creative practice. Um, I kind of had the two things going on at once. I had the baby, but I also had the postnatal depression. And so I often, when I'm asked this question, find it very hard to disentangle the one from the other. Um, I do know that as a writer, having a baby has made me so much more disciplined. I wonder what I was doing with all those hours when I was a student. <laughs> like sleeping or going to bars or making out with boys. It's just like all this time. 
uh, which is now taken up with reading stories and running the bath and, you know, spelling words out because we're at the reading age and, mummy, what does, you know, X spell? And I have to stop everything and think about, oh, what does it spell? Uh, it's very interrupted. But it's that same thing of short bursts. And I think the creative energy is often condensed in a very productive way by the fact of your having been under pressure all day from an external source. I mean, I've written a book, but I wrote most of it realistically in my notes app on my phone while I was walking on around the suburbs, just trying to get him to sleep. And I'd stop at a street corner and scribble something down, some cryptic note, and trust that when I came back to it later, I would understand what I meant, which I didn't always. Um, I think... Again, I can only speak to creative practice... Um, as a writer, I certainly, even at the best of times, even in the best of health, can't sit down and write from nine in the morning to five in the afternoon. You know, I would be dead. I hit my stride at maybe like two to three hours and then I'm done because it's very, very draining. And I find having a child really rejuvenating yeah. now. You know, there is this incredible burden of child rearing that I don't want to diminish as a political issue or a feminist issue, just even like a conservation of energy, physical embodiment issue. But it is stupendously exhilarating sometimes. And I think just being so close to this source of just like primal energy and creativity can be really just fantastic for the work that you produce yeah definitely I am um, uh, before I had Mabel I was trying to write something and I gave myself like two weeks off work just I said I'm gonna do some writing and it was terrible I like I didn't I don't even know how I spent the time I spent I think I spent most of it just trying to justify myself like, oh, I've taken this time off, I should really be making something. And there was a lot of um, pressure that I was putting on myself and I ended up not really writing anything. And then after I had Mabel um, and started chatting with Kate and we started writing, and yeah, I was often writing in 20-minute bursts, sometimes, luckily, an hour and a half or something if, if Mabel stayed asleep. And I found that that really suited my way of writing, that I kind of wrote best in those short periods with high pressure and knowing that that was maybe the only time I'd get that day and um, was way more efficient and end up writing, finishing a piece for once that actually got published. Um, so, yeah, I think having a baby actually, for me at least, was a very creatively productive thing to do, um, even though it wouldn't seem that way from the amount of hours that I spend. Um, has anyone in the audience had similar experiences? Hello. I'm really, I'm really envious whenever I hear people tell these stories about how um, they're so much more efficient with their time or, you know, that having a baby made them more organised or focused or whatever because I'm like, I've always been extremely disorganised and I still am. I just have a baby. And so having a baby on top of your normal disorganisation and then take away sleep and take away food like eating scraps off the floor or whatever yeah um I find work any kind of work now I mean this is work obviously yeah. Yeah. but I find any kind of paid work that you know is it can it, the stuff that I work on is really beautiful really important it's not dog's body crap it's like really like I really want to you know it to exist in the world but I don't yes. want to do it yeah <laughs> Like, I just feel like any work that I do is, like, not hanging out with Harry. So, it's, like, 
so far down the list of things I want to do that day. So yes. I feel the opposite. I feel like he's 18 months old. So I, for a year and a half now, I haven't had any motivation or excitement about doing work. And, and yet I'm you are working on a book. Back, yeah. you, know. you are writing a book, aren't you? <laughs> I, yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm writing, I'm pumping out words. Yeah. And they're get, the clay's get going on the wheel and yeah. it's happening, but it's unenjoyable and it feels like a kind of punishment. Right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so what I'm, you're describing. I'm hoping one day it will change. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what you're describing is for me what parenting was yeah. in the early days. Yeah. You know, there's a season for everything. I think if you're enjoying your time being a parent and you're finding it creatively fulfilling, like, just do that. Not just because we all need to, you know, earn a crust, but... If I I was independently wealthy, I definitely would just... I mean, it is is so much work. I don't want to diminish the work. I, uh, you know, like, I, I didn't find parenting really good until my child was about three and a half, four... And so I'm just having a whale of a time now because I'm, like, catching up with all of the great loving feelings and, like, snuggling him and squashing him. And he kind of goes, Mom, and runs away. And, I, you know, it's feeling very poignant because he's five. He's about to go to school next year. And I just want to pinch his cheeks all the time and love him and adore him. But I think that thing that you're talking about, like, the relentless physicality of the work, the fact that you feel like there's no innate reward... Um, that can be what parenting feels like, and I think it's okay to acknowledge that. We're running, we're running very short now on time, and I think we're going to have to start returning our cushions to our, um, our donors or our loners. Um, so just wanted to ask, do you have any other questions about this um, before, before we wrap up for the day? Or any of you guys have questions for the audience? Okay. And I think it was designed at, like, I think it will have a permanence to it in that it will live on somewhere else, but I think it was designed as a temporary structure. And one of the things that um, Ren Coolhouse and David Giannotten, who are the architects of this space, spoke about was about how people often think of architecture as a permanent space, whereas they, they were more interested in kind of the temporary nature, um, like, or the, the possibilities of temporary architecture. Um, right. And yeah, and our installation's just here for. For today, and we'll we'll be back next month. Um, I think it's the twelfth of November um, for our next installation, which will be quite different to this. Um, we, today was house, and the next one will be street. And we've got a writer, Max Olinik, um coming from New Zealand, um, who wrote a very sweet book about taking his baby for a walk, um, and um, some other architects coming to reflect on how how parents are accommodated at the street level. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So I think with that we'll we'll finish the formal proceedings. But please feel free to just do whatever you need to do to get home, change nappies, feed your baby. We'll start. We'll have to start packing up probably in like ten, fifteen minutes. But um, just yeah, please hang out. And thank you very, very much for coming and sticking it out for the full for the full thing. It's um, and yeah, thank you. And hope hope that you can come to the next one. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram. At, guest rigs we'll keep on documenting our adventures in parents rooms and other other things like that so thank you very much 
should buy Jessica's book and, and follow these guys on Instagram as well. They're Studio Neon. <laughs>